today is a real treat. Aurelian Krayutu is a professor of political theory at Indiana University in Bloomington. He lived half his life in Romania, hence his slight accent. He's a specialist in French political thought, and he has a book that just came out called Faces of Moderation. The book is based both on his professional work as well as his personal experience living in multiple countries. And he's really trying to rethink the concept of political moderation. And I would say, pretty good timing, buddy. Uh, He's been featured on NPR, and I found him through a Daily Beast article called In Defense of Moderation. And I couldn't wait to get him on the show. Here he is. Okay, so Aurelian, let me start by saying I'm not going to be a hostile interviewer uh, because we have a few catchphrases on this show. One of them is hard questions never have easy answers. Another one that I just stole from a recent guest is the conversation is never over. So basically, I could have taken these principles directly from your writing if I had wanted to. So we're definitely coming from the same. We're on the same page here. And so this interview is my attempt to pick your brain to explain to myself and listeners um, maybe some more of the critical theory behind these truths that that we find to be evident, uh, um, sort of like ideological background of this stuff. So let's start by defining our terms. Many people think of moderation in political terms as simply being like in the center, that is somewhere between the far left or the far right, or somewhere in between Democrats and Republicans, but that's not how you see it. What for you is moderation? So um, first of all, I I would like to thank you for inviting me on on your uh, podcast. It's a pleasure to talk about a a virtue that is uh, both uh, so, uh, let's say, commonsensical and yet so elusive. So I would begin by answering your question with uh, with a paradox, which is that this is a virtue that everyone seems to know what it is, and at the same time, it eludes us. Uh, why why is this the case? First, it's, it's a virtue that has a long and complex t- tradition. So it's um, an uh, uh, ethical component here. It's an ethical component. Uh, to be a moderate means to avoid extremes, to um, uh, avoid extremes of passion, uh, extremes of zealotry, fanaticism, and radicalism. But it's more than that. There is, in addition to the ethical component of moderation, there is a whole institutional structure that translates into practice what moderation is. And this is usually not well covered by the discussions of moderation. People assume that it's enough to talk about moderation as an ethical virtue and ignore the institutional, I would say, constitutional and political dimensions of moderation. So that's why it's such a complex virtue. You have moderation as a virtue from an ethical perspective, and then you have the political structure, uh, institutions that translate into practice this virtue. So let's start at the very beginning here. Why is moderation a personal ethical virtue? Like I could imagine someone saying, why not be a radical? Why not be, you know, ideological? Why not go gung-ho for the thing that you really believe in? In the epilogue of the book, uh, Faces of Moderation, um, 
I have um, explained why uh, moderation has several benefits, one of which is that um, it is accommodated within different philosophical, political, and religious traditions. And one of the things that I said there is that um, in all of this tradition, let's say Christianity, uh, Judaism, uh, Hellenism, as well as Confucianism, there is this idea that uh, wisdom lies in, in the measure. Wisdom lies in uh, being uh, rational, but also being self-restrained and uh, avoiding the extremes that I mentioned earlier. Yeah. You, you find this, um, this idea uh, also in the secular philosophers, such as Montaigne. You find it in Confucianism. For sure, in uh, Confucius Analects, the idea is present. You find it in, um, in Christianity as well. Um, St. Thomas Aquinas wrote about uh, temperance, which is a face of moderation. So um, this is one of the things that I think is worth highlighting, which is that moderation is accommodated with, uh, by different uh, traditions. And I think that in all of this tradition, there is this idea that uh, wisdom lies with uh, finding um, not, not always the middle ground, but finding the measure, the balance um, in each circumstance. There is no algorithm for it. That's why um, moderation is um, easily accommodated within, the, within all of these traditions, because I think it is to, um, it's a synonym of measure, of balance. And the idea that uh, wisdom comes with striking this balance between the extremes I think is uh, is an idea that can be found in uh, all of these traditions, and for that matter, I think uh, um, it's a valuable um, uh, virtue. Yeah, it makes me think of Socrates saying, "You know, the more I learn, the more I know how little I know." Basically, and I think I take that to mean the more that Socrates learns about himself, about logic, about the world the more he realizes how immense the world is and how small any particular perception he might have of the world could be, especially if it purports to be some kind of universal perception of the world that takes everything into account. It's kind of like the more you learn, the more you see how impossible that task is. And that kind of forces you to realize that whatever you think the real answer of the universe or of some problem is, the chances are very low that you're right about that. Would you agree? I, I think there is some truth to what you say, uh, and I sympathize um, of your point in, in the following sense. Um, I've noticed that people who uh, tend to espouse radical or extremist views uh, like to close the debate. They have an answer, always one single answer. All the other answers are declared uh, invalid, false, wrong, and dangerous. And this determination to close the debate or the idea that one can close the debate, one can reach uh, a final definitive answer to complex issues such as, uh, for example, not what is the meaning of life, that would be the Socratic question, but let's say uh, um, whether, uh, I, don't, I don't know, more political questions, whether um, marriage can be defined in one way or in different ways, uh, whether uh, social uh, care is a right or not, uh, medical care, whether it's a social right or not. Um, these are difficult questions to take uh, uh, to answer because there are many things that one has to take into account. And uh, I think that people who claim to have the answer to these questions are, are um, uh, by definition, immoderate because uh, moderation implies uh, a certain awareness that things are complicated. There are 
many possible answers to those questions and the best we can do is to find uh, uh, an equilibrium between different answers to complex and sometimes insoluble questions. So, you know, what's interesting about this is it's kind of a meta theory insofar as it is a theory about all the ways you might theorize about specific individual questions. And it's sort of claiming that, like, look, the world is really complicated. You have a limit to your ability as an individual human to grasp all of it at once. Additionally, there are so many aspects of human life and political experience that you will never have. And then it makes this additional claim, which is to say the most pragmatic or responsible or like the best reaction in light of that, in light of that data, in light of those facts, is to find balance. It is basically, statistically, it's going to be better to always look for balance, even if on one or two issues here or there, you end up missing the boat on something that maybe is more extreme and is right. But in the long run, it's going to balance out and you're going to serve the needs of more people. You're going to see people more clearly, etc. Is that is that about right? Yeah, that, that, that's about right. And I want I like to emphasize that uh, the image of balance is central to my book. Um, the title of the book, as it appeared, is Faces of Moderation, The Art of Balance in the Age of Extremes. Uh, the word balance appears in the subtitle of the book, but my original idea was to have it in the main title, The Art of Balance, Moderation in an Age of Extremes. Why do I think balance is so important? It is because um, I define moderation as the art of trimming. Trimming is a nautical metaphor. It's taken from sailing. You trim the sails of the ship in order to prevent it from capsizing. As the winds blow, you lean into the opposite side so that uh, you uh, prevent the, the ship from capsizing. Hence, the image of trimmers, uh, the metaphor of trimming and the image of trimmers uh, are very important uh, for my understanding of moderation. Balance means that uh, uh, equilibrium is always fragile. Um, and if you look at the image of the book, the cover uh, shows a funambulist, someone who walks on a thin wire um, at a very high uh, altitude. And um, that gives you an idea of how difficult moderation as a virtue is, how dangerous and how complex it is. I like, I like this image of the funambulist, the thin wire walker, because um, it really gives, I think, the reader uh, an idea about what kind of virtue moderation is. Think about it. The man yeah. who walks the thin wire, first of all, needs to be um, skilled um, in, in this art. You can't just go up there because you'll kill yourself uh, by falling. Secondly, uh, you need um, uh, a knowledge of the moment. You need to see where the winds blow from and you need in order to keep your balance. Thirdly, you need uh, a little bit of luck because if the winds are too powerful, you may fall in spite of your skill and of your um, flexibility. And uh, last but not least, you need um, a, a kind of um, an art of improvisation. You need to find quick solutions, but there's no algorithm for that. You, you, you need, however, a sense of the final destination. And I think that, that all of these things um, speak... Um, about the complexity, the difficulty, but also also about the uh, 
um, beauty of this uh, complex virtue that is moderation. So the way I am envisioning this, I'm imagining basically like a very good, uh, like a virtuous adult person in a position of power or in a position of leadership, sort of as the tightrope walker, somebody who is not too driven by their own impulses, who has a temperate personality and who values players on both sides of an issue and wants to sort of, um, you think of like a really good mayor, right? Or something like that of, of someone, a mayor who can go, all right, I got these interests over here and these over here and here's what the children need and here's yada, yada. And here is, this is the best compromise we can figure out and it will make everybody pretty happy and it will increase the, you know, I don't know, GDP of the town. You don't call it GDP if it's a town, but whatever. Like you, you think of a mayor, uh, like an individual person who is moderate being able to sort of thread the needle like this. But are there also ways of baking moderation into a system such that they're not dependent upon one temperate individual running the show? Uh, you, you described um, the complexity of moderation quite well, Dan, and uh, uh, in response to your question, I would say that um, moderation cannot be an ideology. You ask whether it can be a system. I, I'm pretty sure that moderation cannot be an ideology, and it would be difficult to have a, mo a party of moderates. Moderates exist, and I think this is one of the conclusions uh, that I find um, most important in my book, is that moderations can exist on the left, in the center, as well as on the right of the political spectrum. It's wrong to claim the moderates are all, always in the middle. But um, you ask whether it can be uh, made into a system, and I, my first instinct here, I don't know the answer to this question, but my first instinct would be to say probably not, because a system would mean uh, the outcome of, of an attempt to fix once forever <laughs> um, a set of answers or solutions into a larger framework, and I don't think that's possible. I, I'm trying to think in terms of um, what I tried to achieve in this book, and I, I, I think I went against uh, the temptation of defining moderation as a system because I looked at faces of moderation, not at, um, at the system of moderation. The faces are different. Uh, I have Raymond Aron in France, who was a major sociologist professor at both Sorbonne and Collège de France, but also a major journalist and public intellectual, uh, I have someone who was extremely uh, important in uh, the dismantling of communism in Poland. Uh, this is Anna Michnik, who is um, still alive, the only um, character alive from the ones that I examine in the book. He was a journalist uh, and uh, he is a historian by training. I have a philosopher like uh, Michael Oakeshott um, and a legal uh, scholar like Norberto Bobbio and a historian of ideas like um, Isaiah Berlin in England. So there's no system behind these uh, thinkers. Uh, they are different, but they converge. I think there is a convergence between their views on a few main uh, topics. And the two most important um, conclusions um, of the book and uh, the similarities between the two are that they refuse to think ideologically. And what you described in the case of a mayor is precisely the refusal to think ideologically, to refuse to think by the book. There is no blueprint uh, that can be applied indiscriminately to all situations. And these thinkers refused that temptation. Um, so that's one. The second thing is that they were committed to um, a politics of dialogue. Keeping the dialogue open 
with your opponents uh, is something very difficult to do. We tend, we'll see this in the month to come, we tend to live in echo chambers. It's very difficult to confront our views and to test their veracity and legitimacy against the views of those who disagree with us. Or these thinkers uh, had this in common, that they were committed to a politics of dialogue. They looked at um, keeping the lines of dialogue open with their opponents, which is something that um, is not easy to do, and it's so rare today because we live in echo chambers, especially in the age of the Internet. Now, you're talking about how it can't really be systematized, and what I... What you keep sort of hammering on very helpfully, I think, is that there's no algorithm. You can't just punch in the situation and the answer will get spit out. Uh, that That's more of an ideological thing. You know, I, I bring up Marxism sometimes to showcase this. But for instance, if you're a Marxist mayor and you have some, you know, conflict between uh, a company that wants to build and, say, the residents of the town who don't want it to come, you just say, well... What's the Marxist way of looking at this? Well, we have concentrated power in the hands of the builders and unconcentrated power in the hands of the individual uh, workers for that company and the residents of the town. We'll just move that power to the residents, and that's the answer. Which, of course, that might be the answer sometimes, but some other time you might have a really great builder who's going to build something that's going to enrich the town and that the residents will be very happy is there once it's done. I, I think about the shopping center a mile from my home, which is incredibly helpful and convenient and houses great restaurants, right? That I'm glad exist. And so someone had to come up with some solution for that builder to make this big shopping center on the corner. And I bet they had to cut down a bunch of trees for it, you know, uh, given how wooded my neighborhood is. And yet everyone who lives here now is grateful that that's there. And so the idea being, we can't just put it through an algorithm, but it does make me think of some more systemic concepts like checks and balances between our three equal governmental branches in the United States. Is it not moderation to have the judicial, legislative, and executive branches sort of balancing each other out, or is that something other than moderation? Absolutely. I, I began by saying that moderation is an institutional component. I called it almost a constitutional and political component, and this is exactly what I had in mind, what you mentioned earlier. Uh, it's fundamental to insist on the fact that moderation has a constitutional component uh, as represented by the checks and balances. Um, in a previous book um, uh, that I published four years ago, five years ago, entitled uh, A Virtue for Courageous Minds, I looked at how moderates build the institutions of representative government in France and I looked at how they sought to achieve this system of checks and balances that certainly um, has eluded France for a long time. And you see how difficult it is to figure out what's the best relationship between the executive, the legislative, and the judicial power. Um, what is the thinking behind uh, the idea of uh, power above all powers? What we have in the United States is the Supreme Court. Uh, other countries tried to do uh, something similar, but um, in a different way, of course. And uh, there's a, um, the idea of moderation. It's complexity. Um, you mentioned earlier that um, radical thinkers, uh, people who tend to think ideologically, tend to also prefer simple solutions. For them, complexity is a sign of um, error uh, or corruption. And I think that um, moderates oppose this view. 
precisely because they think that uh, uh, the truth lies never in the extreme, but somewhere in between. It's uh, it's a gray area. There are many shades of gray, um, not 50 maybe, but certainly there are more than one. And um, it's very difficult to dismiss them. Uh, we need to pay attention to them. So this institutional component of uh, checks and balances is very important for moderation. I would add a few others, if I may, since we are on this page. Sure. The, the concept of executive veto is central to the uh, architecture of representative government as we understand it today. It is a moderate idea because it is meant precisely to allow the powers to uh, share in the exercise of the, both executive and the legislative power. The concept of mixed government, which was um, a major concept for about two uh, millennia in the history of political thought, uh, we still have remnants of uh, mixed government, but not that many countries do have it today. That's another instantiation of moderation. And uh, the what idea is mixed government for those that are unfamiliar? Mixed, mixed government is uh, a form of government in, uh, that combines the advantage of monarchy, rule by one, uh, rule by the few, aristocracy or oligarchy, and rule by the many, which would be uh, democracy. So uh, there are uh, governments that combine uh, elements of the three. And one could say that the American system is a mixed government. Um, I'm not sure I would hold that view, but it has been certainly said that uh, the American system combines um, monarchy, the uh, presidential power, um, the way in which the Senate has been devised is a form of um, rule by the few and then the rule by the many. Um, so that's, that's another um, component. And then the concept of neutral power, what uh, I mentioned earlier, the idea that above all political powers, there should be another power that is free from um, uh, political competition. Justices on the Supreme Court are not elected. They are appointed. They have tenure for life. So they do not need to pander to popular passions in order to discharge their duties. Um, I think all of these ideas give us a sense of um, the institutional components of moderation. And, you know, we're, we're thinking about that these days because, you know, as we tape this, this week, uh, Neil Gorsuch's confirmation hearings are going on and there's a lot of these questions and, and he's trying to paint himself. Um, he's trying to lean into the idea that once you become a judge and you put on that black robe, you are not partisan anymore. And in our current moment in 2017, I, I think it's pretty fair to say those on the right have said, amen, brother, that's true. This is what's great about America. And those on the left have have said, hey, man, like you're being a little naive. Judges are political these days. And just because you happen to be conservative, those are those on your side are have the luxury of saying, oh, absolutely. Now he's got his robe. He's not political. But if it were the, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like whoever's side gets a judge that they like, even though it's been shown that you can't predict what Supreme Court justices will do, despite that, in the moment, each side, if they get their pick, they want to lean into the fact that judges are nonpartisan. And if they don't get their pick, they're going to highlight the fact that there is there are partisan bickerings and, and partisan politics that go into who you can nominate in the first place. So it all boils down to politics. There's a kind of a cynicism that's in the air. And I think that cynicism is especially strong after Merrick Garland was not appointed for almost a year by a Republican Congress uh, under Obama. Can you? What do you think about all this? It, it seems like this idea of justices being beyond politics is under 
especially heavy fire, but it's probably always been under some amount of fire. Well, um, these are heavy questions, Dan, and I'm glad you, you bring them up. Um, let me let me take them one by one. Um, the idea that uh, we need to have a, a power above other political powers, capable of moderating the political game, when that political game risks um, becoming uh, overheated, I think that's a great idea. It's not necessarily uh, an American idea at its origin. It is one uh, French thinker that came up with this idea, Abeste, yes. Uh, the French never managed to achieve it, it was the Americans uh, with the Supreme Court um, uh, in 1803, but um, Sayers tried it in 1795, if I recall correctly. This idea is a very valuable idea, and we, um, we should cherish the fact that uh, the judicial power in this country is a strong power, as we've seen with the executive orders now, the two of them, that have been challenged in court. And I think that it's very important to have the system of checks and balances that prevents any of the three powers, legislative, executive, or judicial, from running amok, from becoming um, uh, over overpowering. Uh, and you, I think not to cut you off, I just think it's worth emphasizing there that if you, for instance, are a liberal and you are grateful that the Washington state judge blocked Trump's immigration ban, then you are grateful for moderation. Right. Absolutely. 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 It's just worth hammering that down a little bit. This is yeah, and and that, that that's why I think that whatever part of the political spectrum one might be, uh, I think it's fundamental to emphasize uh, that um, uh, checks and balances is a, let's say, not bipartisan. It's it's a, a reason of sanity. It's something that preserves the sanity of the political system. Uh, you mentioned bipartisanship uh, earlier, uh, and. Um, uh, there is a lot of, uh, um, let's say, uh, skepticism towards partisanship today, and there's a call for bipartisanship. Um, I'm ambiguous about bipartisanship. I do think that compromise is a better term, but I do think that politics is about partisanship. The question is not whether or not we need um, partisanship. It's, I think, what kind of partisanship we can see, we can achieve, because there is a a dangerous, nefarious form of partisanship that is destructive. Um, we've seen this form of partisanship being played out in the last seven years, especially since 2010. And um, there is actually a civil form of partisanship where people actually um, disagree uh, and uh, bargain hard with each other, but there's a civil civility uh, between them. Um, someone said that the uh, measure of a good political system is whether the leader of the government and the leader of the opposition can go to dinner ev every night. Hmm. And I think there is some truth to that. Uh, and um, we've seen that uh, degree of civility eroding in our uh, political system in the last decade almost. And uh, that's something that we need to be very careful about and we need to nurture. So to make a long story short, I think that uh, to call for bipartisanship on difficult issue is difficult, and it's almost utopian. To call for civil partisanship uh, that is not close to compromise on key issues, I think that's more realistic. And my view of politics is that, um, yes, it would be nice if we could all agree on, on issues, but human nature being what it is, it's unlikely that uh, we'll have the same set of interests. So what we need to do is to regulate our disagreements in such a way that they do not become uncivil. Yeah, so there's there's this 
undercurrent of thought here of uh, it's something that I've been kind of reading about and thinking and talking with friends about, and I'm picking up on in your words that it's kind of an iron sharpens iron thing. You want parties to be real. You want them to exist. You want them to do the best job they can do. And when they are each incentivized, let's say in a two party system, when each party is incentivized to maximally serve the American people. Um, and if they don't, the other party is going to come in and serve the people better and unseat them from power. That's a system that's working well. Basically, you you want a system like that where there's constant pressure on those governing to come up with solutions to real world problems. And it's fine if they come together as a party and they have their convention and they they get think tanks hired who will, you know, spend millions of dollars of grant money to solve the healthcare crisis. This is actually, this is what we want. We want these machines that try and solve these problems, you know, team A and team B, each competing against each other. The American people end up winning when that happens. What I'm wondering from you is, let's say with the Supreme Court, for instance, when does that start to break down? Or is what's going on with Supreme Court nominations a good example of that working with Merrick Garland and Neil Gorsuch? Well, I think uh, the case of uh, Justice Garland is an unfortunate one because he was the victim of, um, of highly partisan politics last year. and never Was that the wrong kind of partisanship or the right kind of partisanship in your mind? It's a good question. I think it was the wrong type of uh, partisanship. Uh, but um, um, I am, uh, you know, I'm far from being sh- certain on this uh, at, at this point. But uh, certainly, I, I, I know that uh, constitutionally speaking, the president was right to propose uh, a candidate, and uh, I think that he would have deserved a fair hearing. Uh, having said that, um, it seems to me that the issue that um, I've seen coming up again and again in our recent political debates is that people have a manichaean. Uh, perspective, Manichaean in the sense that they see the world through black and white, um, forces of darkness and forces of light, forces of good and forces of evil. And um, they uh, simplify the world uh, by aligning themselves with one or the other of the two camps. And then they assume that those who are in the opposite camps are, uh, the, by, by nature, negative forces, bad human beings, and so forth. And I think that... Um, that impulse is deeply destructive of, of normal politics. It is certainly opposed to moderation, and it's, um, uh, um, how should I put it, productive of bad partisanship. That instinct leads to the use of litmus tests in politics. We've seen that with um, uh, the famous um, uh, tax list, litmus test uh, used um, in, um, in Washington. Um, and the use of litmus tests, even on abortion, if you wish, I find that to be very unproductive and um, uh, gen- generating uh, bad forms of partisanship. What do you mean by these litmus tests? Can you flesh that out for yeah. us? So um, um, I'm trying to remember the name of the uh, of the think tank uh, president in Washington who uh, gives uh, a score to each um, GOP, each member of Parliament of Congress on whether or not he or she voted for increase in taxes, tax increases. Oh, okay. One of these, like, scores given just about taxes. Right, right. And um, uh, the, uh, I, I, I have a lapsus of uh, memory here, but uh, certainly this is a litmus test. Uh, 
I, I consider a litmus test also the position of, of, of a candidate, even in the case of uh, the hearings today, uh, on abortion. I, I think that this is, um, uh, an, um, how should I put it, it's a very complex issue that uh, the more we politicize it, uh, the more we, uh, we risk uh, missing the target. And uh, I wouldn't uh, nominate someone based on uh, whether or not he or she is pro-choice or pro-life. I would look at the larger picture rather than this one. So this is what I meant by litmus test. Yeah. The attempt to, to pinpoint the position of someone or a, or a, a platform uh, based on uh, one or two very simple criteria that reduce the complexity of political life. Um, one of the thinkers, uh, by the way, that I, I uh, spend some time uh, with in my book is Michael Oakshot. Oakshot is known as, uh, he, he, he lived between 1901 and 1990. He was a professor of political theory uh, at LSE in London. And uh, he was a conservative by uh, uh, political standards, and he declared himself so. But he was uh, a very odd conservative because he was very bohemian in his private life. He didn't think that conservatism and religion should go uh, hand in hand together. So when he came to assessing, um, for example, uh, the works of some American conservatives, such as Russell Kirk in the 1950s, he found very little in common with them because he said they were working with litmus tests. And, and a conservative is someone who, in his definition, is open to the complexity and the mystery of life. Um, and, and it's impossible to find a formula to define uh, conservatism. That was Oakeshott's perspective, certainly not one that is widely held among conservative circles today. But I have sympathy for that because it's, uh, it's very eclectic. And one of the dimensions of moderation that I forgot to mention at the beginning of our discussion is eclecticism. It's uh, moral eclecticism, philosophical, religious, but also political uh, and economic eclecticism. Some uh, moderates may be for uh, tax increases, some against, some for um, more state interventionist policies, some for less, but there's no blueprint. That's what I think we agreed upon. So... What you've just been saying has raised two questions for me that are pretty separate. Let's start with the with the one that just came up. If these litmus tests, these scores, you know, another score I can think of is 538 has a has like a Trump score and they rank every member of Congress and the Senate on whether or not they voted with Trump or not voted with Trump. And so if you're really anti-Trump, you can look to this score. Of course, the problem with that score, I mean, that, that might be helpful, but the problem is, for instance, a John McCain or a Lindsey Graham, people that most, most of us would agree are like genuine conservative heroes right now, have still mostly voted with Trump because they kind of have to. Like, they're not going to vote against all these cabinet members that a Republican president is putting forward. Their Republican constituents back home would not look kindly on them fighting the cabinet war against their own Republican president when 83%, 87% of Republicans support Trump. So they can't vote against, I mean, they can't reasonably vote against him and still hope to wield any kind of power against Trump down the road. So these litmus tests like that can be a little bit deceiving, in my opinion. Would you agree? Yeah, they are very simplistic. Uh, um, and the one that you mentioned certainly is. Um, they are helpful in, uh, let's say, uh, uh, having a headline uh, at some point, but yeah. uh, but uh, they seem to be very intransigent. And one of the things that um, my moderates, the thinkers that I examined in my book, share in common is their lack of intransigence. A litmus test for me um, signifies um, 
intransigence. Uh, you are either on one side or on the other. And uh, uh, the thinkers uh, that uh, I uh, worked on in this book uh, uh, and the politicians that you mentioned uh, earlier, I think um, they lack that intransigence. And that, that's, that's a sign of flexibility, which uh, is, a, let's say, uh, an aspect related uh, uh, to moderation. And I think that um, um, we have historical examples as well that we can bring uh, uh, to bear on this. So um, uh, th there's nothing new in this regard. To be a dogmatic person is the opposite of being a moderate. But then the question comes up for the voter. If I can't look at those litmus tests or if it's not even – if even looking at how my congressperson has voted, if that's not sort of my best – piece of information, then what am I going off of to figure out if this person who's 3,000 miles away having lunches every day with people and, you know, like, what do I go on as a voter? I, I understand, you know, I, I have long believed that I would just love a bunch of men and women running the country who I knew personally were of strong moral character. That would basically solve it for me. If I knew I could trust the 100 people or the 1,000 people who ran things, if I knew each and every one of them was not in it for the money or the power, but really cared, then I would be like, great, we're good. But of course, I can't have that access, so I have to go on something else. What do I go on? What you are referring to then, I think, uh, shows very well um, that moderation is, and why moderation is a difficult virtue. Uh, it's a difficult virtue to espouse, to practice, and to defend. It's a difficult virtue to espouse, especially when um, you um, run for office. But it's also a difficult virtue to reward and to understand in order to reward. So on all of these accounts, it's not a virtue for the lukewarm people, as uh, Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, thought, uh, wrongly so. It's a virtue for those who have courage, like the uh, tightrope walker is uh, <laughs> a lot of courage, I should add. It's a virtue for those who have uh, patience and a virtue for those who have vision. Um, I, I'm reminded here of um, a, a nice uh, line uh, from a letter that Isaiah Berlin, about whom I write uh, in Chapter 3 of the book, wrote to Kay Graham. Kay Graham was the editor of the Washington Post. This is a letter from 1950. And in this letter, uh, Berlin um, confesses that he was resigned to remain isolated in the middle because, he says, it obviously does not do to have a political position at all unless it is good, crude, simple thing painted in bright colors. <laughs> uh, nuances, he added, are merely a nuisance and are difficult to articulate them uh, in a political campaign. And I think that what you said um, sheds light on precisely this difficulty. Moderates uh, can, however, make a difference in times of crisis. And I want to emphasize this point which is that uh, even if we look at today's uh, division uh, of uh, political power in the Senate, we see that three moderate votes can make all the difference <laughs> in the Senate. Right. The division is now 52-48, uh, and uh, all you need is three votes uh, on one side, right? And uh, I think that's very important uh, from uh, the, if the Democrats could uh, gain the votes of three moderates, I think, uh, things would be different. And this would be uh, the same if, if the balance of power would be um, uh, in the favor of the Democrats. So what I want to say is that in times of uh, perhaps not crisis, but deep tensions, 
I think moderates can engineer sustainable compromises. They are important because their voice counts. The voice of these three potential, or you mentioned uh, Senator McCain, Senator Graham, I would add Senator Collins, uh, um, the senator from Alaska. Um, and I think that um, uh, we, we see that uh, they are not powerless, but uh, it's very difficult to articulate the philosophy the political philosophy of moderation in such a way that you gain votes immediately. Uh, so uh, how to handle this, I don't know, since I'm not a uh, political strategist. But I want to point out, uh, contrary to those who claim uh, that moderation is, um, is uh, a recipe for being vanquished, um, that moderation actually can lead to uh, positive outcomes. It's that time again when I ask you to consider giving to the Patreon campaign. There's a bunch of cool stuff that patrons get, uncut episodes a couple days early with content that does not make it onto the final episodes. For instance, Thomas Morton from Vice is next week. The uncut episode will go up a couple days early for the patrons. David Bazan is coming up, Greg Boyd, um, plenty of awesome guests as well as other things, whatever I can think of to send to the patrons I do. I was on a conservative radio show in Seattle. That's going to patrons only. Conversations I have with friends or colleagues or whomever that I think might be interesting. I try and record them, send them to the patrons. So really trying to take care of you guys, and I'm so grateful for your help. We are almost at $400 a month, which is my first goal, which is to cover my hard costs. And then after that, we moved to $650 a month, which is called the Pay Myself Federal Minimum Wage Goal, which is pretty self-explanatory for the hours that I put in for the show. Anyway, uh, I love doing this show. I'm not going to stop it just because there's no money coming in. I would do the show even if it still cost me $400 a month because I believe in it and I think it's something that I should be pursuing with the help of brilliant people who are willing to come on the show and chat with me. But... Nonetheless, it's still great to have support. So if you're into that, you can head to patreon.com slash depolarize, or there is a become a patron button at depolarizepodcast.com. People my age, I'm 33. So broadly speaking, millennials, generation X, whatever, I think that it's kind of in the air that we think if I say I'm a Democrat, that means I'm on team Democrat and I will necessarily be thinking black and white. If I'm a Republican, that means I'm thinking black and white on team Republican. I think that people my age think that by claiming political independent, saying I'm not in one of the parties, that that means that is identical to saying I see shades of gray. I have opinions on various policies and not just down the party line. But what you're saying and what uh, listeners will remember Michael Ware uh, recommending at the end of his episode is be involved in a party and then express that diversity of opinion within the party. I think that there's something missing there in the way that people my age and that I have myself thought about political parties for the last 15 years or so. Can you speak to that? Yeah, uh, I think both positions are possible, but my fear is that the first one that you articulated, which is your generations, 
We are separated by 18 years, by the way. Um, I think <laughs> that uh, um, almost half a generation, I would, I would say. Uh, I think the first position risk becoming uh, non-political or apolitical at some point. And uh, for better or for worse, whether we like it or not, uh, our politics are dominated by political parties. And um, if we care about uh, what kind of society we live in, we need to care about what kind of political parties we, um, and civil society, of course, we have around us. And um, it's not only political parties, it's also a lot of civil and political associations that uh, make, make a difference. But uh, speaking of political parties, yes, I do think that it's important to uh, look at um, whether or not they can accommodate uh, moderate politicians because, uh, after all, it's the decisions made by uh, coalitions that uh, determine what laws we live under. So, uh, again, this is uh, half of the picture. The other half, as you mentioned, is uh, um, made up of those who, um, I think, uh, declare themselves... Um, independent or apolitical, but I, I, it's hard to think of someone who is really apolitical um, because so many of our the aspects of our life are dominated by what ultimately are political decisions. Yeah. So um, I, I, the, the thinkers that I wrote about in this book were not politicians with, with two exceptions. Uh, it's interesting. The first exception was um, Norberto Bobbio. Um, Norberto Bobbio um, his dates are 1909-2004. He was a legal scholar who was appointed, a professor of law in Italy, was appointed as senator for life in 1984 by the president of the Italian Republic. That's an interesting institution that Italians have, senator for life. Yeah. And it's kind of an honor given to um, prestigious intellectuals or people who rose to prominence in uh, humanities, social sciences and arts. And he certainly uh, deserved that honor. He was an independent in the Italian Senate, and he voted with the Socialist Party. He was never a communist, but he was an independent nonetheless. But he had to vote with, with a group, so he chose to vote with the Socialists. The other, um, not necessarily political actor, uh, polit politician, but political actor is Adam Michnik. Michnik um, uh, was a major dissident in the communist Poland, involved in um, uh, the um, uh, movement called Solidarity, and he emerged after the fall of communism as one of the leading post-1989 uh, Polish intellectuals and editor of a very influential uh, newspaper called Gazeta Wyborcza, uh, which is still published in Poland. And uh, Michnik, who is now 71, almost, has been playing uh, an important role as a public intellectual, but politicians, uh, very few among the figures that I, I wrote. It makes me, this is just kind of an aside, but I wonder if it's a little bit of a bummer that Bernie Sanders is an independent senator, because I think it might give the impression to a lot of people who liked him very much, I, I liked him very much in terms of his, his approach to at least Wall Street corruption, if nothing else, uh, give the impression that he could be, that like that's normal. You could have these independent senators who will speak truth to power, but... The fact is, it's much easier to do that in Vermont than it is in California or Washington or Texas. And so do you think that that has kind of poisoned the waters a little bit for, for younger voters? I don't know. I'm puzzled by the Bernie Sanders phenomenon. And, uh, you know, in all, uh, uh, in all honesty, I wasn't very uh, excited about his candidacy. I'm more excited now than I was then. Interesting. Um, uh, Why? Yeah, it's odd. 
I, I thought uh, that he had no chance of winning, uh, and he was undermining the whatever chances uh, Senator Clinton had at at some point. So probably I was wrong in that, but th that was my political, I think, calculation. Uh, certainly I was wrong because he, uh, Clinton didn't win at the end. But I thought that uh, the rhetoric against Wall Street was was not going to carry the day. There's another example of an independent senator that I want to bring up is uh, um, a, a state that is also on the uh, upper northeast. It's the state of Maine that has a tradition of independent senators. And there's one right now um, in the Senate, Angus King. Uh, Angus King is a very interesting case because he's someone who uh, uh, is an independent. He votes with the Democrats. Uh, but is certainly um, someone who has been uh, very capable of uh, engineering compromises and working with people on both sides of the political uh, spectrum. So he's not a secret Democrat, as he was uh, accused. He was um, he's someone who has been uh, very effective as uh, at uh, proposing um, bipartisan bills. In the article you wrote for The Daily Beast, which is about your book, you say that moderates, quote, eschew violence and favor incremental changes to improve their communities. Can you unpack this a bit? Why should we prefer incremental change to swift change? Okay. Since you asked this question, I want to go back to Bernie Sanders, who proposed at some point um, during the campaign uh, free uh, education, uh, if I recall correctly. Yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think that's... Uh, um, neither a desirable nor a, uh, let's say, a realistic um, solution for us. Instead, I would go for um, a reformist position. I would espouse, embrace a reformist position here. I think that, for example, when it comes to um, um, education, uh, we need to, uh, to make it really effective. We need to look at uh, uh, giving our students, our children, the opportunity to avail themselves of what's best uh, in the fields of knowledge, all fields of knowledge, and we need to, to, to be more competitive, we need to be more demanding. Um, by uh, offering uh, free education to everyone, it's unlikely that that's, uh, that's going to happen. Um, that's my, my perspective, what, what's worth. Uh, but I do think that higher education, for example, suffers from uh, administrative bloating rather than uh, from other problems. So a lot of the uh, in co inflation um, and uh, the rising of the costs is due to uh, the bloating. So you're saying it's just to make it free and keep it the same price it is now is not the most effective solution to the problem? No, I, I would approach it differently. And I, I think that's, uh, you know... And in fact, if you took a, if you took a tack of, hey, let's make this more efficient and then let's also make it cheaper, you might get a lot of right-wing people on board who are all about cutting out inefficiencies. Absolutely. Let me give you a more, uh, a more concrete example here, and uh, I'm pretty sure that I'm not saying any, any new things uh, for the listeners. Uh, my university is a major research one university. It's a very good one and respectable one, but uh, the increase in administration in the last uh, 20 years, I've been here for 17 years at Indiana University in Bloomington, is, uh, I think, uh, uh, unprecedented by all standards. We have now more uh, deans, associate deans, vice presidents than ever before. And at the same time, the number of tenure-track faculty has gone down. Um, and I think that's not normal. We need to, uh, let's say, save on administration. And uh, with the money that um, we spend on administrators, we can have better graduate student programs. We can give more fellowships. We can give more fellowships to undergraduate students and so forth. 
an associate dean now makes $200,000 or, or so. That's 20 uh, graduate students funded from uh, a position that uh, is, is barely justifiable. So th- those are the reformist positions that I have in mind. Uh, let's trim what we, what we should be trimming. Let's be more demanding. I've been a, a college professor for, for um, some time now, and I've, I've seen how I lowered my own standards because students uh, think that uh, I'm too demanding in my classes. Um, I used to be able to assign six or seven or eight books uh, only a decade ago. Now, if I assign that many books, students uh, will not take my class, and because we apply cost efficiency criteria to uh, determine um, the funding of our courses, I may end up um, uh, offering uh, classes uh, with uh, very low enrollment uh, if I don't lower my standards. I don't want that to happen. So I'm, I'm all for reform in higher education, and I think that we have a lot of things to, to change, but um, I don't think that offering free education is the solution here. I think we need to enforce uh, better criteria uh, for hiring, better criteria for admitting students. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm very sympathetic to reform. Let's apply this same rubric to another difficult question, healthcare. So many people would like to say, on you know, people on the far right would say, get the government out of it entirely. I'll buy my own insurance. I'm not, I don't want to be subsidizing other people. And then those on the far left would say, let's move directly to a single care, single payer system like most of Europe. Is this a situation where moderation gives us a middle option? I think so. I've been thinking about this, and let me uh, begin by stating up front that I'm no expert in this, and um, like uh, Albert Camus uh, once said, I like to quote this, I like the assurance that allows one to settle everything. That's good. <laughs> and uh, I have the right, he says, to hesitate and to weigh the pros and cons, and that's what I'm doing, actually. So I apply a common sense position here, Dan. Uh, I look at um, the current situation. I see, um, or up until recently, up until 2010, I see a rich country that has left out of uh, medical insurance uh, millions of people. A very rich country that is spending more per capita than any other country in the world. I look around where I see uh, countries that are not so blessed that, as we are, uh, offering um, uh, medical insurance to many more people than we, we do. And I'm asking, how is it possible? What makes that possible? Does it work? It doesn't work perfectly in all cases. Even uh, the system in, the, in Great Britain or in Canada is not perfect. But certainly we can learn from their uh, achievements and their errors. So rather than thinking ideologically on this topic, like uh, that socialism, and we are committed to choice and free market, I want to think pragmatically. I really think that it is a scandal to live without medical insurance, millions of people who can die, uh, because of the lack of resources. And I think that uh, we can learn from other people's achievements and errors because there are both on uh, <laughs> both errors and achievements in those cases. So I, I want to think pragmatically, not politically. Of course, I like to have choice, but I don't think that uh, we need to stick with the ideology of choice when we decide these issues. We need to be pragmatic, not ideologues. But neither should we stick with the ideology of universal health care? Or that, or universal healthcare may be the best solution, but only if it is the most practical. How how would you state your position? Well, I I, I don't know. That's what I would say. I don't yeah. know. Um, I think that uh, again, um, if we look at the examples of other countries, I prefer to look at the example of France and Germany rather than England and, and Canada. 
if we look at how they solve the problem, that's probably the best way we can do. Yes, they do have a form of universal healthcare there, and uh, I think we can we can learn from that. But just the formula itself, uh, I, I don't. I'm not particularly fond of formula in in general. So uh, I, I want to learn from the experience of others and discard their errors and keep uh, their. Achievement. Yeah, central to your claim is just United States healthcare fix will be different than everyone else's healthcare fix because we're a different country with unique concerns. And you're just pushing for, as we seek to solve this problem, let's leave immoderation out of it, basically. Yeah. Yeah. Let's leave ideological thinking out of yeah. it uh, because immoderation is probably too abstract a term in this. Let's leave ideological thinking here. I don't like this, this discussion being uh, couched in terms of um, choice, free market versus uh, universal healthcare. I, I like to think about... Uh, how can we minimize the risk of millions of people um, uh, who lose their jobs or, you know, for some reason uh, cannot afford, uh, you know, uh, facing uh, dire situations because they don't have access to health care? Yeah, you could imagine the moderate position being something like, can we establish universal, uh, like, emergency, catastrophic, and basic preventative care? Exactly. And I think, I think uh, Dan, in this regard... Um, we suffer too much from a binary um, mode of thinking, um, and 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 this is not only applied to healthcare. Let, let me explain this um, in in larger terms. One of my colleagues here, I've, I've been privileged to be a colleague of, won the Nobel Prize in Economics. Uh, her name was Eleanor Ostrom. She died in 2012. Uh, I was privileged to know her well, and she won the Nobel Prize for one very simple reason. So she was an, a political scientist who won the Nobel Prize in economics. And here's why. She came up with the idea, and she and her husband, Vincent Ostrom, who died in the same month and year, June 2012, they came up with the idea that uh, it is wrong to think in terms of the state or the market, the state or the market, to many solutions. He, they thought of uh, conceptualizing uh, many practical issues from irrigation, from um, how farmers work their uh, land and um, divide their territories. Um, they thought uh, that it's better to think in polycentric terms. So there are many, many ways, many ways in which uh, these um, uh, problems can be solved. Some may be more cooperative, some may be more state-oriented, some involve a, a larger share of the market. But there's no one single solution, universal healthcare or market. So... <clears throat> Trying to complexify this whole debate is, I think, what we can do rather than simplify it. My fear is that all of our politicians, most of them, including Bernie Sanders, for various reasons, have sim tried to simplify it. And by trying to simplify it, they have done great harm because you can't solve a complex issue by simplifying it. You first need to understand the complexity of and then address it because if you start by ignoring the complexity, then you'll find um, you'll come up with wrong solutions. So to an issue such as healthcare, I think the polycentric approach by looking at how different, as you said, different approaches, different structures, different cases uh, can be solved is a better way. It's, it's not necessarily a conservative um, approach. It's not necessarily a socialist approach. It's an eclectic approach. And that's what moderates, I think, uh, espouse. There has been talk 
recently now, especially after the election, Democrats lost a bunch of House seats, Senate seats, Trump won the presidency. There's been a lot of talk on the left of, hey, the right has gotten a lot done in recent years by avoiding moderation. Freedom Caucus and the Tea Party movement, you know, Trump's Make America Great Again, which uh, has basically tilted everything in favor of the GOP. And there are those on the left who say, it's time we use their tactics against them, fight fire with fire. I have a feeling you're going to disagree with that. And I would like you to explain to us why you would disagree with that approach. Very much so. And I, I'm, I'm grateful you brought up this issue. Um, as a matter of fact, it came up um, in, um, <laughs> in a broadcast I had on NPR uh, on On Point show with two journalists. Um, one of them was is defending precisely this issue. Um, Michelle Goldberg from Slate Magazine, and she said, no, no, this is not a time for moderation, it's a time for um, opposition. And I think that um, that's perfectly legitimate from one perspective, but certainly from my perspective, it's self-defeating, because I think that it ignores the fact that um, um, moderation is um, can be a recipe for success if it's applied well, and um, you shouldn't uh, see it just as a... Uh, let's say, circumstantial uh, weapon that you use uh, against or to advance a certain uh, limited set of um, uh, objectives. So in this case, it's it's pretty clear. Politics is uh, is both a short-term and a long-term goal. Uh, The tone in which our debates is conducted um, is very important, and I mentioned earlier the importance of civility. It's very important to avoid looking at the world in Manichaean terms, as much as a Democrat might not like the Republicans, it would be wrong to assume that um, all of the 62 million people who voted for Donald Trump uh, are uh, racists, ignorance, and just uh, people who have a wrong view of the reality. Yeah. We talk about this a lot. The only thing you can say about those who voted for Donald Trump that they have in common is that they all voted for Donald Trump. Other than that, they have myriad differences. Yeah, it will be, and and when when uh, when uh, someone uh, uh, ignores that complexity, I think it's a it's a recipe for self defeat because uh, you politics is a, is a game in which you form alliances, but also you try to understand the world through the eyes of, of those who disagree with you. It would be nice if everyone agree with, agree with us, but that's not the case. So I think that that uh, the idea that uh, now is time for complete uh, resistance is, is wrong. Resistance must occur, and I'm glad uh, to see it right now, for example, in the very complex debate about the involvement of Russia and the Trump campaign. I think this is very important to be clarified. This is not an act of resistance. This is an act of sanity and of national security. So I think that we need to, to uh, prioritize here. On some issues, there should be no compromise. Okay, and there is no moderation is not a recipe for everyone and for everything. Uh, on this issue, it's very important not to be moderate on the issue of the involvement of Russia in the in the electoral campaign because it's a, a matter that is vital to our national security. We can't afford that to happen again, uh, if it happens. So uh, on other issues, it's important to seek ground and middle ground and compromise. And uh, I think that uh, in this regard, it's very important to look at the current debates on, uh, let's say, immigration, healthcare. Uh, I'm not sure what I what I would stand on uh, on 
either uh, side if I were in the middle of the debate because immigration is a big issue. Certainly, uh, it, it is simplified by the issue of the wall, the building of the wall and, and so forth. Um, we will have to come to terms with the fact that um, 11 or 12 million people um, live somewhat illegally in this country and they need to, let's say, uh, regularize, uh, legitimize their presence here in some way. You, we can't send them back and accept, accept them uh, uh, after that. Um, so we need to come to terms with these complex issues by simplifying uh, them. It's not going to work out. That's why um, I, I, I think that this is uh, a terrain, this is a, uh, a set of topics on which moderation is called for on both sides of the, of the aisle. You can't think in in slogans when it comes to um, to solving these issues. You mentioned potential Trump-Russia ties and Russia's role in the election as topics that do not call for moderation because they threaten basically national security and American democracy as as an entity. When else is moderation not called for? Good question. Um, I mentioned... Um, in my book, and this is a, a central topic in the previous book as well, uh, which ends with a decalogue of moderation, that there are moments in history where um, y you can't be a moderate. Um, opposing Hitler, for example, and there's no, no similarity here between Hitler and Trump, I want to emphasize that, but since you asked the question, I want to answer it in full. Uh, opposing Hitler, opposing Stalin, for example, uh, you couldn't do it with uh, a moderate approach. Uh, I'm thinking here of Alexander Solzhenitsyn's case, the uh, Nobel Prize winner, uh, great Russian writer, who was extremely immoderate in challenging and opposing the Russian um, uh, political nomenclatura of his day. He wasn't a moderate in, uh, in calling for the truth. It's um, undoubtedly that um, uh, a moderate policy would have been defeated in that case. So there are some moments um, in history, we can also think of um, what another moderate, Abraham Lincoln did. He suspended the habeas corpus at the onset of the civil war, because that was what was needed to be done at the time. It's a measure that cannot be extended indefinitely. So I think that, that in that regard, he was right. Um, so that was not the moment for um, uh, moderation either. In my classes, for example, I do have uh, a small example um, uh, in which I asked the students to compare the suspension of habeas corpus with the Patriot Act, um, which is, has been in effect for the last 15 years. Uh, habeas corpus didn't last too much, but uh, we've had the Patriot Act for 15 years. So I asked them to think about these extraordinary measures in political theory, this is called the prerogative of the executive power to act against the law or outside of the law for the protection of the common good. So there are these moments when uh, the executive prerogative is acceptable, but it cannot last forever. Yeah. So you cannot, you cannot act in an immoderate way forever. I think um, most of politics are um, uh, normal. Uh, exceptional circumstances do occur, but fortunately we live in a world in which we don't have Stalins and Hitler every day. I do think, though, that a lot of people on the left feel like resisting Trump is at least akin to resisting Hitler. Not that they think that Trump is going to kill, you know, 10, 12 million people or start a world war out of his own ambition like Hitler did, for instance. But they do fear that he might start a war on accident. He might start a war through sheer folly or his ego. 
uh, being attacked. He might start a war through intemperate speech. You know, he he's offending heads of state left and right since he um, was elected, even before he took office. You know, Andrew Sullivan, the writer for New York Magazine, you know, wrote that America has never been more ripe for tyranny than it is right now. Uh, I, I think that it's unclear how much of that doomsday stuff is coming true. I think Steve Bannon and his ideas represent what some would consider a very serious threat. So someone who's of that mind, who let's just say, let's give them the benefit of the doubt. They are not a, a partisan. They're not just a Democrat that hates the GOP. They are genuinely worried about Trump and Bannon and whatever as a threat either to foreign stability or civil liberties in the United States. What can that person be moderate about and what should they be looking out to be immoderate about? Well, one one thing that I'm concerned is uh, the fact that um, we need to keep the common ground wherever it's possible and that common ground is uh, possible uh, to be kept alive only when there's respect for facts. Yeah. And we've had a lot of discussion about facts, alternative facts, and uh, things like that. And without this common ground, we are in ex- existential peril. And that's the existential peril that I'm concerned most, unlike um, Andrew Sullivan and others. Uh, I, I don't think um, uh, the country is ripe for tyranny, but um, the country is ripe for uh, cacophony. Cacophony in the sense that we all speak different languages, we understand uh, uh, reality uh, and we see the reality through different lenses that have nothing in common. Coming apart, that's what I find dangerous. And I think that's the existential peril that we are facing today. It seems like the only leaders who could bridge that divide are moderates, right? Well, uh, I hope so, in a way, uh, but I, I really can't say for sure. But I do, I do have to say that it is impossible to be moderate unless one um, has, a, a let's say, a set of facts that we all agree upon, because uh, if we don't speak the same language, moderation has very little uh, to offer. So um, I think that's that's the danger that I'm concerned uh, mostly of today, because, uh, again, it seems that um, uh, all of this discussion about alternative facts, uh, things, that, uh, relativism, this is not something new. In, in a way, maybe we're reaping um, the wrong... Um, roots of some decades of relativism, where people say, well, it, it, the truth is just relative, relative to those who have power or those who don't have power, relative to your gender, ethnic background, and there's no, no, no set of universal truth that we can all believe in anymore. And maybe that's it. That's what we are coming you know, to have today. I'm not sure. This, this is actually a conservative understanding of, of our crisis. It's been um, laid out perhaps most forcefully in a book that uh, I still like to reread every now and then, Ellen Bloom, uh, The Closing of the American Mind. Maybe that's what what's we're facing. But I, I tend to be skeptical even of, of such an interpretation at the end of the day because uh, I don't know whether we can speak of the American mind in general. We are a diverse country very diverse. You live in the state of Washington. I live in uh, the state of Indiana. Uh, what do we have in common? That's a question that I'm asking. Uh, what do I have in common with someone who lives um, in New York, who lives in uh, Florida, New Orleans, and L.A.? Uh, what keeps us together? How can we uh, live our lives in very different ways, but also um, 
come together to respect a set of uh, universal facts. As long as we can do that, yes, this is going to be a great country. But once we start being unable to do so, um, I, I fear for, uh, for our future. So I got two more things that I like to end with. The first is to inspire a little humility. And I'm sorry I didn't send you this question beforehand, but what is the best argument against moderation? Well, um, the best argument against moderation is that it, this may be the best argument for moderation. It can, cannot be made into a system. That's what we discussed okay. earlier. I would say that um, moderates um, are fallible human beings like everyone else. They certainly are not prophets. Sometimes they may act as prophets who know the direction of the future, but then they betray the spirit of moderation, I would say. So to the extent to which they do so, they may be accused of um, betraying um, the very virtue that they claim to be. And in this case, I would say there are sometimes false uh, forms of moderation. And it's perhaps difficult to uh, distinguish between the true moderates and the false moderates. And I think that is a limit to moderation, that um, it's not clearly spelled out, neither in my own work or in the discussion that I've seen. So there are true and false forms of moderation. It's very difficult to, sometimes, it's very difficult to distinguish between them. Yeah. And then here's the one that we always do. I want you to speak to people on the left and then to people on the right individually. Let's say there's someone on the left who is encouraged to embrace more moderation. What lines of reasoning on the left should they resist in that quest? Yeah. So, for example, on, uh, to, to people on the left, the idea that um, the state is the solution, that we need uh, more state, not less state, uh, that, for example, um, Wall Street is something uh, intrinsically bad uh, that needs to be uh, uh, utter, uh, thoroughly reformed. I think that's a simplification of reality. Far from me from defending Wall Street from its most egregious errors, which are obvious, but we need to remember that uh, our standard of living today is um, far better than uh, uh, the standard of living of our predecessors four years ago. There's a recent book by uh, um, uh, an an Indian, uh, London-based Indian uh, social uh, theorist, Praja Mishra, um, The Age of Anger. And in this book, Mishra um, uh, claims that today is uh, like um, carnage. It's it's the worst time of, of civilization. Uh, because of the inequities of uh, post-colonial era and so forth. Uh, That's a temptation that I would uh, recommend uh, people on the left resist, because um, in economic terms, we are better off today than any time in in the history. It doesn't mean that we live in the best possible world, but um, the advance uh, of technology and uh, the advances in in science are, are tremendous, and we shouldn't ignore that. So it's very clear that temptation to to see carnage, to use um, Donald Trump's metaphor from the inaugural, um, uh, is is present on on the left. The same is present on the right, where people would would describe our era uh, as one uh, of um, complete debauchery, corruption, 
and I, I would I would point out that uh, we've made great uh, increases um, and great strides here. Um, the end the civil rights um, movement uh, was a great step forward. The Civil Rights Act. Uh, we put an end to lots of discrimination in the workplace. Women now are being paid more than in the past. Still not enough, but we can get there if we pursue this line. So th- that kind of uh, uh, narrative, I think, it would be useful to be um, uh, rehearsed to someone on the on the right as well. So uh, the temptation to think ideologically is usually manifested in the temptation to see the world through black and white uh, contrasts, and I would uh, make a case for gray, and I would say gray too can be beautiful. And this is a line, by the way, that I borrow from Adam Michnik's essay. So finally, what are practical ways that we can uh, practice this kind of moderation as we interact with others in person or on Facebook, how we vote uh, in terms of our Democratic resistance, protests, letters to Congress people, etc. I think that uh, civility is, is one way of uh, being moderate. Being a moderate also means, as I said earlier, a certain um, skepticism towards those who would try to simplify reality and offer us, let's say, simplistic um, solutions for our complex problems. Uh, to be a moderate would mean a to acknowledge uh, our fallibility and imperfection and um, strive to maintain it rather than to cure it. Uh, To be moderate would be, uh, I think, to um, promote competing centers of power, checks and balances, incremental change, and um, keeping alive the common ground that I mentioned earlier. Don't don't cut the bridges. Finally, there is a positive view of the common good behind moderation, and I I want to end with, with this because... Uh, it is also often assumed that moderates lack a positive view, but no, there is a big view here behind moderation. Reduction of inequalities, reduction of discrimination. There is a positive um, um, view here of what keeps us together, what prevents us from coming apart, as I mentioned earlier. This view of the common good is very, very important. Just keeping the dialogue open in a civil way, but not glossing over our differences, not trying to pretend they don't exist, but trying to understand the world and force others to understand the world through our own eyes and trying to understand the world through their own eyes. I think that's a positive good. And I think that all of this uh, give you a sense of how complex this virtue is. It's not only being civil, it's being also radical at times. I know this is a um, uh, may sound like a cheap paradox, but moderation has a radical side to it. That's why it's such a difficult virtue, and that's why most people eschew it, because it is difficult, dangerous, and uh, it takes a lot of patience and determination to be a moderate, like the tightrope walker, which is on the co- who is on the cover of my book. Yeah, man, I feel that in my own personal life. You know, I don't, I don't know if you're religious or not, but I am, and... I- I find my. I do have a religious, com- religious dimension, but I'm not a. Re- I'm not a church. Yes, goer, which yeah. is fine. Uh, but I, for me, I just, I just mean to say it manifests itself. I know that it's hard because it's a thing I end up praying for. You know, I pray sometimes for the strength to continue doing this podcast when it would be so much easier to just pick an ideological side, close off myself, and become a warrior. Yeah. 
exactly. It 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 takes a lot of uh, for me. It takes courage for me to to continue to keep the moderate lines of communication open. Maybe it comes more easily to other people, but for me, it's like a it's like a muddy struggle, you know. Well, you you you, you put it well, and I think that um, um, I I I've seen this um, in the comments of the listeners to the NPR broadcast, which which I I looked at because they posted them, yeah. and. And many people said um, very clearly um, um, a call for moderation is a call for the status quo. We don't, to be a moderate is to be a bystander. This is not a time for moderation. Uh, not the right time, not the right discussion, premature. Um, and I think that um, you know, I respect uh, people's uh, you know, frustration and, and, and um, dissatisfaction with the, with the current situation, but but to claim that moderation would be responsible for um, you know bad things, it's it's uh, it's wrong. Uh, but I, I also think that um, this is this is somewhat an unprecedented time in our in the history of our republic because of the the populist movement behind uh, behind Trump's candidacy, uh, because of uh, the unique nature of the of the candidate who won the elections and. Um, because of the polarization, because Trump will will, will probably go away at some point. Um, I don't I don't see him as um, as a two term candidate. Uh, but maybe maybe uh, I'm wrong. Maybe he's not going to finish his first term. So it's hard to tell um, you know um, what the future holds in in store for us. But I'm I'm concerned about the coming apart. Yeah. Phenomenon. Um, Basically, we'll live in oasis or bubbles, echo chambers, and uh, and there's very little that brings us together. Well, you don't have to convince me of any of that. I started a podcast to combat it, so pre- preaching to the choir here. Well, you you are on the right track, then, and uh, I think that um, one one positive thing is that we have this conversation, and uh, others may may chime in and um, contribute to it. Yeah, and I, I in the in the spirit of open dialogue, I would like to say one last thing, which is even in this conversation between you and I, two people who agree that moderation is important and is the spirit of this age that we should be looking toward, it's still an open question on what things this administration might do that would uh, yield. Um, a call to the end of moderation, for instance, you know, if he were to round up Muslims or, you know, whatever there, it's an open question as to when do we resist full throatedly? When do we look for moderation? And that's, I would say an aspect of moderation that we even leave that conversation open. Yeah, absolutely. The conversation is open. I, I, I don't believe in litmus test, but I, li- I, I believe in national emergencies. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, so that's that's a difference uh, right there, and I think that uh, it's it's important to uh, to acknowledge. Uh, for for me personally, any potential involvement of, of Russia in the national elections here on this side of the the ocean uh, is such a national security uh, threat that cannot be ignored. Yeah. Maybe because of my Romanian background, maybe I don't know uh, my experience, but I think that's something uh, where I would draw the line. I mean, it's unacceptable. Um, so that's not not an issue on which moderation is. If uh, if if all of these allegations or some of them, uh, Paul Manafort, Manafort's that latest one is very disturbing. If any of this is true, then uh, there's no room for moderation. Well, Doctor Aurelian Krayutu, thank you so much for your time today. 
We will have links up at depolarizedpodcast.com, links to your NPR session that you did, your new book, um, the Daily Beast article that we've referenced. Uh, If people want to keep in touch with you any other way, how might they do that? It's very simple. I'm uh, uh, a professor at Indiana University in Bloomington, and my uh, em- I can be reached by email at acrayutu at indiana.edu. Are you also on Twitter? I'm not on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> That's probably for the, for the best. I'm on Facebook, but I keep a rather private profile. If I could recommend one thing in people's <laughs> daily practice to be a moderate is to avoid Twitter. <laughs> yes, I... I do I do Facebook, but I keep it uh, uh, restrained. So I'm I have about four hundred something friends, and uh, I feel comfortable. Yeah, that's that. that's fine. I'm not gonna I'm not going to call you to greater social media engagement. It has not produced a whole lot of fruit in my own life. Uh, thank you so much for your time, and uh, man, for your work. I appreciate uh, your attention to my work, and I thank the listeners for spending some time with us. Have a good day. Bye bye. The track you've heard playing in the background on this episode is called Have a Ball by Pet Memory, which is one of my various musical projects. If you have a podcast of your own or if you work in creative fields like advertising, you can license this song through a request at dancoke.net, K-O-C-H, or by searching for Pet Memory on marmosetmusic.com. That's pet like cat or dog. You could probably hear in my voice how pumped I was to have that conversation with Professor Krayutu. Um, Check out his book. I just got my copy in the mail. I'm excited to read it. It's called Faces of Moderation. Uh, Also check out that article in defense of moderation on the Daily Beast. And next week, we've got Thomas Morton, reporter for Vice News and host of the Viceland show Balls Deep. He's a funny guy. Uh, We talked a couple days ago and recorded that conversation, and I was laughing, and he's got some great stories, and he is also just uh, doing amazing work with his show, Balls Deep especially, but also his work on Vice News. So look forward to that. Join the conversation on Facebook. We have a group called Depolarized Podcast Discussion Group, and it's awesome. It's really a supportive community of people who are trying to depolarize together. Every day, someone's asking for feedback, like, hey, does anybody have a good source for this article? People keep sending me this weird one from this liberal or conservative blog. Does anyone have anything kind of neutral on this? That kind of a thing. And it's been really helpful for me and for others. Also, you can follow me on Twitter, D-A-N-K-O-C-H. Also, you can email me, depolarizedpodcast at gmail.com. Let me know what you think. I'd love some feedback. And finally, you can listen to past episodes and check out show notes at depolarizedpodcast.com. We'll see you next week with Thomas Morton.